This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Starting with an opinion piece by Timothy Thomas. Open space, CU South, and civil rights. A first step towards just sustainability in Boulder. Dear Council Candidates, I thank you for having the courage and tenacity to run for Boulder City Council. The vast majority of you have received endorsements from one of two blocks of political campaign committees, the Environmental Block, consisting of Plan Boulder, and Forward Boulder, and the Justice and Sustainability Block, which includes groups like Sierra Club and Boulder Progressives. As a longtime black resident of Boulder, I ask, why would you pursue and accept the endorsement of Plan Boulder? I have observed the fierce public debate regarding CU plans for its South Boulder property, which included the construction of up to a hundred up to eleven hundred units of badly needed affordable housing. But I think most people are missing the fact that this is not simply an environmental issue. It's also a racial and social equity issue which requires equitable planning. The American Planning Association describes equitable planning projects as those that pursue the triple bottom line outcomes of environment, equity, and economy. This three-legged policy stool forms the very foundation of the concept of sustainability. Unfortunately, many Boulderites limit their definition of good policy mostly to impacts on land and animals, and in the case of CU South specifically, of flooding. Internationally renowned urban planning professor Julian Agelman seeks to change this paradigm by asking activists and politicians to seek policy outcomes that achieve just sustainability. This framework adds two more legs of the three-legged sustainability stool, geographic equity and procedural equity. This requires us to extend our concept of community beyond the borders of Boulder. Such an approach would seem reasonable if people truly cared about the environment and President Biden's liberal agenda, including fair housing. A U.S. Housing and Urban Development HUD webpage states that on its first days in office, the Biden administration declared that affirmatively furthering fair housing provision in the Fair Housing Act is not only a mandate to refrain from discrimination, but a mandate to take action that undo historical patterns of segregation and other types of discrimination, and that afford access to long-denied opportunities. The federal law, which was originally part of the 1964 Civil Rights Acts, mandates the city do more than simply not discriminate. They must take meaningful actions to overcome patterns of segregation and foster inclusive communities. In addition, Boulder must determine who lacks access to opportunity and address any inequity among protected class groups and promote integration and reduce segregation. This report is called the Analysis of Impediments to Fair Housing. Boulder's 2015 report mentions Plan Boulder as a strong citizen's lobby interested in land preservation and that over 45,000 acres within the city have been preserved as open space. 
but it also states that the two major implications of the open space program on housing choice have been a decrease in housing affordability and choice because of less available land and what is teamed, termed leapfrog development in which in-commuters must travel further across open space from other communities to access jobs and services in Boulder. Leapfrog development adds transportation costs for those who must commute. It is estimated that 59,000 people commute to Boulder for work. According to a robust 2014 Housing Choice Survey, approximately half of in-commuters would choose to live in Boulder. In addition, the draft of the City of Boulder's recently enacted racial equity plan states that some ways the city government has strengthened and increased racial inequity include height restrictions, the green belt, buying open, buying up the open space around Boulder in an effort to preserve nature, creates restricted movement in and out of Boulder, and drives up cost of housing due to limited residential parcels, as well as zoning and gentrification to preserve natural landscapes without replacement of housing. This is an open admission that the preservation of open space and other restrictions have an adverse effect on racial equity. The language was finally softened, was softened in the final version. The policies, procedures, and practices that the Save South Boulder SSB campaign and the Plan Boulder insist upon solely in the name of environmental protection are not sustainable and they are unjust. In a city that a planned Boulder co-chair recently called a liberal bastion, shouldn't racial and social equity be considered in land use policy? CU South will take hundreds of cars off the roads, provide affordable housing, and do so in a socially just way by allowing a more diverse faculty and staff to teach a more diverse student population. This will lead to the higher levels of regional geographic equity and do so in a procedurally equitable way. Building on vacant land, aka open space, surrounding our city would do the same. People need places to live near where they work and learn, not just places to walk their dogs and play frisbee golf. Please oppose SSBs and Plan Boulder's socially and racially exclusionary housing policy initiatives on CU South and city land. If SSB and Plan Boulder really cared about sustainability, not merely environmentalism, they would seek more balanced solutions to CU South and the myriad other land use issues in Boulder. A longtime Black Boulder resident gave an interview to Boulder Weekly in an article titled Black in Boulder, Boulder Racism Through the Eyes of People of Color. She said, I think generally speaking, people in Boulder pride themselves on being very liberal, very progressive. On top of that, they're very well off overall. I think that idea of liberalism sometimes blinds to the notion of where people in this community contribute to the perpetuation of white privilege or white supremacy, even if they aren't of mind or heart a person who thinks that these other people are less than. I couldn't agree more. Now in Stu's Views by Stu Sallow, a.k.a. the Deadhead Cyclist. Debt and Company's cancellation of Florida shows demonstrates the true spirit of Grateful Dead. 
Well, in the midst of a critically acclaimed 31-show tour, supergroup Dead & Company suddenly announced on September 28th the cancellation of its sold-out October 6th and 7th shows in West Palm Beach and Tampa, Florida. The citation of routing and production logistics rings hollow, given that the state of Florida appears to have been singled out as the location of the only canceled shows of the tour, while the remaining 13 shows in states from coast to coast, including Colorado, are expected to be held as scheduled. There is a lyric in the Grateful Dead tune Bertha that couldn't be more apt in this context. Try to see what's going down, maybe read between the lines. For the uninitiated, Dead & Company is the latest and most successful in a series of bands to be handed the Grateful Dead baton since the death of band leader and countercultural guru Jerry Garcia on August 9, 1995. For the casual observer, Garcia's death merely took its rightful place in the interminable list of popular music figures fallen prey to the hazards of the rock star lifestyle. For us deadheads, there was a feeling of panic, a sort of what-are-we-going-to-do-now moment, the sort that shakes you to your core, threatens your very identity. This led to the inevitable question, could there be a Grateful Dead without Jerry Garcia? My knee-jerk reaction at the time was an emphatic no, and I became increasingly steadfast in that position as I faithfully attended post-Grateful Dead concerts by bands like The Dead, The Other Ones, and Further. In each case, despite lineups including various surviving members of the band, I was left with feelings of emptiness, sadness, and disappointment, particularly after hearing another member of the band sing one of Jerry's songs. Then came the 2015 50th Anniversary Fare Thee Well shows, all five of which I faithfully attended and wrote about at length, most notably in a piece entitled Ladies and Gentlemen, Not the Grateful Dead. While the preceding post-Jerry bands exhibited the propriety of refraining from calling themselves the Grateful Dead, this group was actually billed as the Grateful Dead, and in many ways was less worthy of the moniker than its predecessors. But a funny thing happened on the way out of Chicago after the final show on July 5th. John Mayer, a brilliant guitarist better known as a pop star, had become infected with the Grateful Dead's music and culture and formed an unlikely collaboration with founding member, rhythm guitarist, and lead singer Bob Weir. Consequently, Dead & Company was born. The band played its first show together on October 31, 2015, and included Grateful Dead drummers Mickey Hart and Bill Krutzman, along with bassist Otile Burbridge and keyboardist Jeff Shimonmenti. I have seen the Dead and Company a dozen times now and have found a new favorite band. Not because they are the closest replica of the Grateful Dead to date, but because they're a great band in their own right. Instead of trying to be the Grateful Dead, Dead and Company is the next evolution of the Grateful Dead, in much the same way that Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young grew out of Buffalo Springfield and the Birds, and Led Zeppelin and Cream grew out of the Yardbirds. Dead and Company is its own band, while keeping the vibe and music of the Grateful Dead alive for a new generation of fans and longtime Deadheads alike. After a pandemic-forced hiatus in 2020, 
Dead and Company announced a full concert tour in 2021, and out of deference to the safety of their fans, crew, and themselves, subsequently restricted attendance to those who are vaccinated or can present a recent negative COVID-19 test. The tour went on without a hitch, and along the way two shows were added at Red Rock's Amphitheater in Morrison, which makes the two canceled Florida shows seem all the more suspicious. To read between the lines of the allusions to routing and production logistics, we must travel back in time to May 3, 2021, the date on which the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law Senate Bill 2006, which prohibits Florida businesses from requiring proof of vaccination as a precondition of service. But more recently, in the midst of Dead & Company's tour, the state of Florida doubled down on its May 3rd statute. Effective September 16th, a $5,000 fine per incident can be assessed to any business requiring customers to show proof of a COVID-19 vaccination. And this despite the fact that infections in Florida have skyrocketed over the summer, as the state has been one of the hardest hit areas in the country from the Delta variant in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. What this means is that hundreds or even thousands of individuals could show up for a Florida concert sans proof of vaccination, and the band and its promoter Live Nation would have a choice between admitting them and turning the concert into a super spreader event, or facing millions of dollars in fines. Just a thousand such incidents could lead to a fine of five million dollars. This is what reading between the lines means when applied to the phrase routing and production logistics. What choice was there but to cancel these shows to indemnify the band and promoter from a financial nightmare while protecting tens of thousands of fans from exposure to a potentially deadly virus? Nevertheless, this decision has unleashed a firestorm of debate that follows suit with various pandemic-induced controversies that have afflicted all of us for the past 19 months. Unfortunately, even among the hippie-infused culture of the Grateful Dead, the discourse has turned hateful and largely divided along party lines. One fan criticized the ban for taking action that can only be seen as politically motivated. This is a really stupid decision. Did you see the CDC just announced that college football games are not super-spreader situations? 85,000 people at these events, no vax proof needed. This is a political statement by the band, and it is super lame. Much of the criticism focused on the financial losses fans would suffer due to the timing of the announcement, not understanding that the $5,000 fine provision was enacted less than three weeks prior to the concerts. These things should have been worked out before they announced the concerts. That's responsibility to your fan base. Their fans have spent good money on flights and plenty of non-refundable things, and this is wrong. Others defended the band and directed blame towards Florida's state government. Everyone bummed out by this should direct their negative feelings towards Governor Ron DeSantis. Say what you want and think what you want, but they would still be playing if it were not for the governor's stance. Finally, the point was made that the state's policy left the band and promoter no choice due to the reality of insurance logistics. G.A. Pitt, referring to the general admission section of the venue immediately in front of the stage, 
has to be vaxxed according to the band's insurance plan for the tour. He, DeSantis, outlawed asking for a vaccine card, so no show. What is especially revealing about the way Florida Governor DeSantis has handled pandemic-era leadership in his state is summed up in a comment made by a spokesperson, Taryn Fensk. In his defense of the decision to enact a $5,000 fine for violations of Senate Bill 2006, Fensky echoed the rallying cry of Donald Trump's ill-fated 2020 re-election campaign, saying promises made, promises kept. This face-off featured DeSantis' adherence to Trump's failed COVID-19 policies versus Dead and Company's commitment to the safety of their fans through sensible policies. It is truly unfortunate that many fans will miss the chance to experience a terrific band and the most authentic Grateful Dead concert experience of the post-Grateful Dead era. But the band should be admired for its courage and sacrifice. It is estimated that the cancellation of these two shows represents a loss of around $4 million in revenue. For within this decision, we find a model of putting the needs of the public ahead of the desire for wealth and political power. The Grateful Dead always placed financial gain in its proper place, beneath higher priorities. This, In this situation, Dead & Company has proven itself to be worthy carrier of that still-burning flame. Please keep that in mind as you cast your ballots during this political campaign. It matters who we place in a position of power and trust, and too many of our political leaders, Ron DeSantis included, are not worthy of the trust we have placed in them. We need to do a much better job of choosing who will represent us, whether on a local, state, or national level. Let that be the silver lining of Dead & Company's decision to cancel their 2021 Florida shows. Vote 2021, Boulder Weekly's annual guide on how to vote in November. Boulder County, it's a pleasure to meet you. My name is Brendan, and by the time you're reading this, I'll have been editor-in-chief of Boulder Weekly for a mere six weeks, which is also how long I have had more than a passing familiarity with the region you call home. Fresh eyes are an advantage when coming into a role like this in your community. I didn't have preconceived notions about the issues facing the municipalities here or a group of friends who influenced my opinions about our local politics. I've been learning and analyzing as I meet politicians and activists who span the unique political spectrum that's involved here. Those same fresh eyes have been applied to understanding the intricacies and nuances of political issues and their historical context here to help you navigate your ballot on November 2nd, when municipal, county, and state-level decisions will be made by you, the voters. Thankfully, I'm not alone in this endeavor, wherein Boulder Weekly's editorial staff spoke with every candidate for every race in Boulder County and researched every question that will appear on the various ballots. Boulder Weekly managing editor, Caitlin Rocket, has been with the paper nearly eight years. She was a Boulder resident for four years, but was priced out and retreated to slightly more affordable digs in Denver. My wife and I both commute to Boulder from a Denver suburb for work, and Caitlin's a commuter too. We're part of a block of this community that doesn't get a vote on Boulder issues, 
yet is a critical factor in nearly all the City of Boulder's issues. We're part of the 60,000 member workforce that comes in like a tide, spewing our carbon emissions and clogging up traffic and paying sales tax on what we buy while we're here. Boulder Weekly News Editor Will Brunza will mark up a City of Boulder ballot on November 2nd. Will has been a Boulder resident for a decade since he came here to attend CU Boulder and decided to make this place home. Few, if any, of his classmates did the same due to the cost of living and the fact that this place doesn't offer much to a single person in their mid-twenties just trying to launch their career. All three of us identify with values that are labeled progressive, equal opportunities, equitable social justice, offering a hand up to our neighbors in need. That's who we are, and our opinions in this year's vote guide reflect our values, morals, and ethics. I've always found newspaper endorsement, endorsements annoying. Most are presented as the paper's opinion, a monolithic corporation as faceless and nameless Marianistas offering its direction for the community where you live, work, and play. We're not one of those newspapers. Boulder Weekly continues to be the only independent and locally owned newspaper in Boulder County. What we offer you in this vote guide blends our wealth of experience covering local governance with our impressions gleaned after one-on-one -on -one conversations with the candidates as well as ballot questions, proponents, and opponents. We took a deeper look than you may have the time or resources to pull off. Though our choices for these races are highlighted throughout this issue, we offer our preferences as informed suggestions and a starting point for an ongoing dialogue. For what it's worth, our decisions on candidates were unanimous, as were our calls on ballot questions. To learn more about these candidates and issues, we've provided links to candidates' websites on the online version of this story at boulderweekly.com. Some of you will disagree with our choices, that's a given, but we'd like to make this an opening of a dialogue with our readers. There are three more issues of Boulder Weekly before the election on Tuesday, November 2nd, and we encourage you to write in and tell us where we hit the mark and where you think we're completely off in our analysis of these ballot questions. We'll dedicate extra space to that interim to the most incisive and acute feedback we receive, whether we agree with the conclusions or not. We look forward to your feedback and your reactions from our takes here. Send your evaluations to us at letters at boulderweekly.com. Signed, Brendan Joel Kelly. City of Boulder, Boulder City Council. Boulder Weekly endorses Matt Benjamin, Lauren Folkerts, Nicole Spear, Mark Wallach, Dan Williams. Boulder as a concept, as the best place to live in America, as a liberal lodestar, is untenable. That facade conceals a community divided between those trying to protect a 50-year-old vision of the city as an environmental wonderland and those who see the necessity of change to correct the damage wrought in pursuit of that same vision. There are two competing visions of Boulder. That's readily apparent. One is a Boulder now decades in the past when a question like, do citizens really think that Boulder should try to accommodate everyone that wants to move here? 
might not have wreaked so much classism against the tens of thousands of people who came here to wait our tables, to tune up our $5,000 bicycles, to teach our children, or to write in our newspapers. In the present day, though, the damage is done. Boulder is already a white, wealthy, exclusionary enclave, not a welcoming, progressive paradise. The competing, forward-looking vision of Boulder strikes us as considerate of what the city of Boulder could be if it were truly committed to fulfilling its potential. Yes, that means change, and one side of the political divide here in Boulder seems wary, if not downright scared, of changing what was created 50-plus years ago. Look, we appreciate the open space and the blue line and the height limit and how radical those ideas were for their time. But today, Boulder faces challenges that demand even more revolutionary ideas. Expanding housing density without compromising environmental and lifestyle ideals. Embracing and encouraging diversity in the community. Providing effective, compassionate services to the less fortunate among us. These are all issues we believe are solvable with fresh ideas and an awareness that change is inescapable. Our friends at Naropa would remind us that impermanence is a cornerstone of Buddhist teachings. We believe it will take innovation and idealism to reverse course, coupled with pragmatism and experience, yes, but not in equal amounts. For those reasons, we're supporting Matt Benjamin, Lauren Fulkerts, Nicole Spear, Dan Williams, and Mark Wallach for City Council. The four candidates running as a progressive slate along the single incumbent on the ballot, who's proven his ability to thoughtfully dissect issues and change his mind when warranted. Matt Benjamin Matt Benjamin, a freelance astronomer, ran for city council in 2017, but felt his candidacy pulled support from other candidates with similar aims and values. In 2019, instead of running again, Benjamin headed the coalition, an assemblage of further left political groups challenging the long in-power slow-growth majority on the council, and chopped up three wins by coalition-supported candidates. In 2020, Benjamin chaired the successful campaign to directly elect Boulder's mayor using a type of ranked choice voting. This year, the coalition has endorsed Benjamin's run for council, and we concur that Matt's time has come. He says his work in the community supporting candidates and ballot measures and serving on city working groups shows him a potential that Boulder's failing to pursue. We're not We're just not on the trajectory to meet those aspirational goals, he says. Benjamin is an advocate for rethinking zoning to address not just affordable housing in Boulder, but middle-income housing for young working families. He'd like to see Boulder invest in a program like Denver's Support Team Assist Response, STAR, to use mental health professionals to respond to calls instead of police when appropriate. And in building the Boulder of the future, he envisions eliminating parking requirements and instead providing access to non-driving transportation options. And right off the bat, Benjamin says he'd work to pass increased gun control measures in Boulder. I want to leave this community better off than I found it so that my kids and their generation had the building blocks in this community to thrive and meet their generation's challenges, he says. Lauren Fulkerts 
As a career-long architect, Lauren Folkert sees the world in terms of how places and spaces shape behavior. It's a perspective that she believes would make her a useful city council member because it also lends her insight into building codes, zoning, carbon footprints, and community access. Folkerts has a firm grasp not only on the issues facing Boulder, but on many of the possible solutions to address them. When asked about affordable housing, she starts listing stats, how nearly 60% of Boulder workers commute here, and how that affects our environmental footprint and sense of community within the city. She talks about reformatting Boulder's use tables and rezoning specific areas of the city to allow for more affordable housing options. When asked about homelessness, she says flat out she doesn't think the city offers enough services for its homeless population. She talks about reestablishing Boulder's day center to give those experiencing homelessness a place to stay and charge their devices and get some food, but also to create a central location where service providers can locate and connect with those they're trying to provide services to. Folkers is sharp, well-informed, and has a clear vision for what she believes Boulder needs. She's unwavering in her own beliefs, but unafraid to compromise and find middle ground when it comes to working through some of Boulder's more contentiously argued issues. She's flexible and firm all at once, progress-minded, but also realistic. And while she has big ideas for Boulder's future, she's also familiar with the often tedious, nitty-gritty details of city governance and its processes. Nicole Spear. There are people who self-identify as active community members, and there are people like Dr. Nicole Spear, who embodies the description. When Spear isn't running the Intermountain Neuroimaging Consortium at CU's Institute of Cognitive Science, where she manages a team of 12. You can find her volunteering at weekly homeless outreach programs or working with the NAACP to promote equity and inclusion efforts at CU. In fact, on the topic of equity and inclusion, she is the only Boulder City Council candidate who translated her campaign into Spanish, a testament to her dedication to include minority and underrepresented populations in Boulder. Spears got big ideas for addressing Boulder's biggest issues. When it comes to housing, she believes that every available option should be in play, from expanding occupancy limits to tiny homes and ADUs, to buying up land specifically for affordable housing, much like the city did with open space. When it comes to homelessness, she's against the camping ban and for the safe camping and safe parking policies. She's also wary of increasing Boulder's police budget. While she clarifies that doesn't mean she won't support the police, she does want to shift spending away from that direction. When it comes to the hot-button topic of CU South's annexation by the city of Boulder, Spear says she's all for it. As a resident of South Boulder, she sees the problem as a matter of the perfect getting in the way of good. Her neighborhood and those that surround it need flood mitigation, and they need it sooner rather than later, she says. Adding, there are going to be a lot of hard changes we're going to have to make in order to deal with the climate emergency. We can act tomorrow, she says, but tomorrow might be too late. Spear comes off as an idealist and a big picture thinker. That's because she is. 
She's aware that her biggest priorities and the issues that are most important to her are issues that Boder has been wrestling with for years, even decades. Equity, housing, homelessness. But to Spear, that's all the more reason to start addressing them now, and we at Boder Weekly concur. Mark Wallach. We believe in the importance of balancing idealism with real politique. And that's the reason incumbent councilman Mark Wallach is once again receiving Boulder Weekly support. Wallach is wrapping up his first term on the council, and while he's proud of the work that he was able to accomplish, he says that he didn't get to really address the issues he ran on. Between COVID-19, college riots, and mass shooting here in Boulder, Wallach's first term was largely spent handling different local emergencies. That's why he says he's running for a second term, despite repeatedly likening his position to the myth of syphilis, pushing a boulder uphill. Wallach is a pro-affordable housing, but against the boulder, but against the boulder bedrooms are for people measure on the ballot. He believes bedrooms will only serve to force rent prices up, push single families out of Boulder, and make landlords wealthier than they are now. He says that's why he's been working to advance the Municipal Airport Planning Reserve housing project for his entire first term, and will continue to do so in a second if elected. He calls the airport the local amenity for rich white hobbyists, and he thinks it would much better serve the community if it was developed as permanent affordable housing instead. Wallach supports the camping ban and is an advocate for more enforcement of it and more police funding. He recently voted to increase the Boulder Police Department budget by $1.5 million and says that the city isn't obligated to provide any additional services beyond what it's currently offering to address homelessness. Despite those positions, which are contrary to our own, we're supporting Wallach again for one pivotal reason. He can change his mind. It's something he demonstrated with his vote on the annexation of CU South. Wallach was against the annexation agreement for a very long time, but after extensive research, hours of testimony, and many meetings on the topic, Wallach wrote in an op-ed explaining why he was going to break with his previous position and vote in favor of the annexation agreement when the council held its emergency vote in September. It wasn't the outcome of his vote that sold us on Wallach so much as the process that got him there. He remained open to all the information, digested it, and then made his own choice based on the facts in front of him. On top of that, his realism, logic-oriented mindset, and disdain for looking through rose-colored glasses make him a candidate we'd like to see remain on the council. Dan Williams Dan Williams, a litigator, says he didn't intend to jump into politics even a year ago. But when he considered what was at stake in this election, his take was grim. It seems to me the city has really gotten off track. Our wealth disparities growing. Our population numbers stagnated. They're actually starting to decline. We're locking out future generations, he says. We're failing on our racial equity and social justice goals. I mean, Boulder talks about itself as a liberal mecca. But when you talk to people in POC communities here, that's not what they're feeling. 
I thought ultimately I could do a good job pushing our city in a more progressive direction. Williams ticks off a list of the human assets Boulder has been losing. The artists and musicians, the people who want to launch new companies, the creative types, the people who want to work as massage therapists or work in our restaurants, they're being locked out now. To that end, Williams supports expanding multifamily housing in Boulder in spots like Diagonal Plaza and also supported the Bedrooms Are For People ballot measure, which would expand occupancy limits to match the number of bedrooms in the dwelling plus one. Williams' wife is a public health nurse who's provided services for unhoused people, and he approaches that issue with compassion. If we want to have people who aren't living by the creek and aren't defecating by the creek and who aren't spending their days drinking by the creek and in our underpasses, the solution is to give people safe places to be, he says. His proposed solutions include a day shelter and designated camping areas. He opposes the city's camping ban. Instead of trying to hold on to a past image of Boulder, we have to think about what its future is going to look like, Williams says. We wholeheartedly agree. Ballot question 2i, extension of community culture and safety sales and use tax, Tabor. And ballot question 2j, approval of issuance of bond to be paid from extended community culture resilience and safety sales and use tax, Tabor. Boulder Weekly endorses a yes vote. Boulder Weekly mildly supports a yes vote on both of these measures. First, some background. The measure asks if Boulderites want to extend a current 0.3% sales tax for the next 15 years with the majority of the money, about 90%, funding infrastructure projects and the remainder going to community nonprofit organizations. Issue 2J asks voters if it's okay for the city to borrow $110 million to finance these projects with a repayment figure of $158 million to be repaid from the sales tax. The original culture and safety tax passed in 2014 provided 20% to local nonprofits and was only applied for three years before voters were asked if they wanted to extend it again in 2017, which they did. Now, another three years later, Voters are being asked if they'd like to keep the tax for a full 15 years, but with half the amount of the money, just 10%, going to nonprofit organizations. While there is no formal opposition to or support for this measure, a number of organizations in the arts and culture community have expressed frustration with the cut in nonprofit funding. While Boulder is often touted as an art town, arts organizations have long argued that the city's funding is paltry compared to cities of a similar size. Additionally, the 10% allocated in the tax is for all local nonprofits, not just arts organizations, meaning arts groups will be pitted against, say, human service groups. And 15 years is a five-fold increase over the previous extension of the tax. It's trying to loop in too many competing interests that are apples and oranges, it gives people a sense that the arts are being supported to agree which they are not, says Amanda Burke-Wilson, artistic director of the Catamount Theater Company in Boulder. 
The issue is that we invest in buildings and not in artists or producers. We have beautiful buildings that are expensive to produce in, and we live in a town in which it is expensive to live. On the flip side, this does not increase taxes from the current level, and frankly, it's hard to get taxpayers excited about funding infrastructure projects. The city certainly needs the money, with city council stating a 29, in 2019 that Boulder had more than $300 million in unfunded infrastructure projects. It's safe to say that this tax won't actually cover all of the city's infrastructure projects, but it will get the process started for some major improvements, which include $17 million for transportation, maintenance and improvement of roads and multi-use paths, replacing the Central Avenue Bridge, and replacing traffic signal poles, $7 million to improve the Boulder Creek Path Corridor, $8 million for the Civic Area, the land between the main branch of the library and the Shabby Tea House, $11 million for the construction of Fire Station Number 3, $35 million to reallocate or rebuild Fire Station Number 2, or fire station number four, 1.4 million to add advanced life support capabilities to Boulder Fire Rescue, 13.5 million to renovate East Boulder Rec Center, 5 million to acquire street light system from Excel and convert to LED lights, and 4 million to refresh Pearl Street Mall. Ballot question 2K, council committees, and ballot question 2M, council payment schedule. Voter Weekly is four, yes. These two ballot measures, one that would codify rules for city council subcommittees that examine particular issues, and one that would adjust city council members' pay schedule to match that of other city employees, are administrative changes brought forth by the council to smooth wrinkles. The council committee's measure would simply write into law the process the council already follows for subcommittees. Subcommittees would be limited to two members in most cases and never have a majority of the council on them. Council members who aren't on the subcommittee can attend meetings but not participate. Two council members required for a recruitment committee when the city is hiring a city manager, city attorney, or municipal judge. The council payment schedule measure would alter council members' pay schedule from the per-meeting basis of $239, fully dependent on their attendance, to the same schedule as other city employees, but not dependent on the members' attendance. The pay wouldn't increase or decrease, and it would smooth operations for the city's administrative staff. Both of these changes make sense, and we encourage a yes vote on ballot questions 2K and 2M. Ballot question 2L, clarification for signatures of petitions. Voter Weekly encourages yes, four. Referendums are required to overturn decisions made by the city council or state government. Currently, Section 46 of the Boulder City Charter requires 10% of the number of registered voters sign a referendum in order to validate the petition. Ballot Question 2L would modify that slightly in order to match the state's requirements for referendum petitions. If approved, it would change the requirement to 10% of the average number of people who voted in the last two City Council candidate elections. 
Because this is only meant to align municipal law with state law and clarifies language, Voter Weekly supports a yes vote on this measure. Ballot question 300, bedrooms are for people. Boulder Weekly encourages a yes vote. Boulder currently limits home occupancy to three or four unrelated individuals per home, no matter the number of bedrooms in the dwelling. This ballot measure would alter the law to make the occupancy limit equal the number of bedrooms plus one individual, five unrelated people in a four-bedroom house, for example. In a city with a housing crisis like Boulder's, we feel this is an appropriate step to ease the pressure slightly. We also believe the members of the new council should, as allowed by law, amend the law with a two-thirds majority to enact affordability requirements for dwellings with more than a certain number of unrelated occupants. Opponents of the bedrooms are for people measure point to the possibility of unintended consequences should this be enacted as law. Predatory developers enlarging houses so they have 12 rooms and become stealth dorms, and lawsuits from developers to stop the council from amending the law to include affordability measures. The group opposing this measure argues that Section 54 of the City Charter would handcuff the council from making smart changes to the law. That law says the council cannot amend an initiative passed by voters provided that the amendments do not alter or modify the basic intent of such ordinance. We understand how that would prevent the council from, say, limiting the number of bedrooms, but in a case where the council amended the law to require that rents in a residence with eight or more people must be 25% under market rate, we don't see how increased affordability is in conflict with the measure's stated intent to increase occupancy. We are a yes on bedrooms are for people. Ballot Measure 301, Humane Clothing Act. This initiative would ban the manufacture and sale of many new fur products in Boulder. We are of two minds on this measure and hence neutral on picking a side on this one. On one hand, we agree that the fur industry is disgusting. Visit this initiative's backer's website at furfreeboulder.com if you need details. Yet, on the other hand, there are currently no businesses in Boulder manufacturing the fur products this initiative specifies, and just a handful that would be impacted by the ban on selling such products. This proposed fur ban is a symbolic measure. We'll leave it to your conscience to decide if you'll cast a symbolic vote to prohibit a problematic industry that we don't want to have here in Boulder. Ballot question 302. Let the voters decide on annexation of CU South. Boulder Weekly encourages a no vote for the current annexation and for the current annexation agreement. On September 21st, Boulder's City Council voted to annex the CU South property. The Council wanted to move forward with the annexation agreement with CU as is. 155 acres of the 308-acre property would go to the City of Boulder, 119 acres of which would become permanently protected open space, and 153 acres of the property would remain available for CU to develop. The current plan will also offer a 100-year flood protection for the residents of South Boulder. 
That emergency vote happened several weeks ahead of this November's election, and it set in motion a series of political events that changed the nature of ballot question 302. Prior to that council vote, 302 would have put the question of annexation entirely in the hands of voters and would have forced conditions favored by groups like Save South Boulder into the annexation agreement. Those conditions, which are still part of ballot question 302, include a site plan that specifies zoning, a transportation plan, a financial projection, a financing and payment plan, agreements and permits from all city, county, state, and federal agencies, an environmental impact plan, and a pollution control plan, among several other conditions, all before breaking ground on the site. Proponents of 302, like Save South Boulder, say that these conditions are standard in other examples of city annexation. They say that CU is using this property's flood mitigation value as leverage to develop parts of the property outside the flood zone, however the university would like. They also argue that a 100-year flood protection isn't nearly enough. Opponents of ballot question 302, like Protect Our Neighbors, argue that they need flood protection and they need it now. With the climate crisis impending, there's no knowing when the next big flood will happen, and they'd rather the city act sooner rather than later, even if it means cutting CU a favorable annexation agreement and even if it means getting a 100-year flood protection instead of 500-year protection. Mayor Sam Weaver has repeatedly called this ballot question a poison pill because he says it won't save anyone, but it would delay flood mitigation potentially indefinitely. A referendum petition to overturn the City Council's emergency vote is already underway. If 302 is passed, and if that referendum gets enough signatures to overturn the city council vote, then the annexation fails and the city has to move forward with the conditions specified in this ballot question. If the referendum doesn't get enough signatures, the vote on this ballot question becomes merely symbolic. Conversely, if ballot question 302 is voted down and the referendum does get enough signatures to overturn the council's vote, annexation still fails. But the conditions in 302 are null and void, and everyone starts over from scratch. There is no simple way to explain this extremely complicated and long-debated issue. But in most basic sense, a yes vote on 302 means no to the current annexation agreement. Flood mitigation and CU construction will have to wait until the conditions are met. And a no vote on 302 means yes to the current annexation agreement. A 100-year flood mitigation is necessary, and South Boulder needs it now. Having witnessed the devastation and loss that the 2013 flood caused in South Boulder, and having heard testimony from many South Boulder residents on the verge of tears, begging City Council to act now and save their neighborhoods, Boulder Weekly firmly encourages a no vote on 302, Delaying the annexation of CU South any longer would put those neighborhoods and our community members in direct and imminent danger. State of Colorado, State Amendment 78, Requirements for Spending Custodial Money. Voter Weekly encourages a no vote. 
This measure would amend the state's constitution to require Colorado's General Assembly to determine how custodial money, like federal grant money and private donations, is spent. This is a reactionary measure by the right-wing opponents of Governor Jared Polis, who were dissatisfied with Polis spending the state's nearly $1.7 billion from the CARES Act without legislative approval. Passage of this bill could hinder swift delivery of emergency funds to communities in need by requiring legislative approval for dispersal. It's a bad idea. We're calling for a no vote on Amendment 78, but it's possible this measure won't even make it to the ballot. A lawsuit has been filed to remove the measure from this year's ballot, alleging its presence on the ballot is illegal because odd-year elections are reserved for issues related to Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or TABOR. State Proposition 119, Creation of an Out-of-School Education Program and Marijuana Sales Tax Increase Initiative. Boulder Weekly encourages a no vote. There is a simplicity to Proposition 119 that is both encouraging and misleading at once. On its face, Proposition 119 is self-evident. It would place an additional 5% tax on cannabis sales to create the Learning Enrichment and Academic Progress, or LEAP, program. LEAP would offer tutoring, music, dance, and art enrichment programs, language instruction, career and technical training, mental health services and physical therapy, support for students with special needs, mentoring, and more. It would start in January of 2022 at 3% and would incrementally increase. But the funds for LEAP won't just be funneled from cannabis sales tax. Proposition 119 would also divert $20 million in the first year and $22 million in the next year from the state land trust to the state public school fund. That money would not be subject to constitutional spending limits and once distributed would go to private contractors and providers who could potentially be based out of state. Proponents of Proposition 119 argue it's an easy way to bolster student achievement and uplift underserved families with supplemental education opportunities. Opponents of this bill see this as an untenable tax hike on the state's cannabis users. Colorado Norm argues that the state is already reaping over $32 million in marijuana taxes and fees annually. While we at Boulder Weekly agree completely that Colorado's underserved students need a program like LEAP to level the playing field and gain access to supplemental education opportunities, we aren't convinced this is the right way. Marijuana shouldn't be the state's go-to money tree every time it wants to raise resources. That's why we're urging you to vote no on Proposition 119. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder Weekly. My name is Kate McCann. Please stay tuned for the next program.